It's time to cover all things Catholic in the heart of South and Central Texas. Live from the studios of the Guadalupe Radio Network, get ready to rise and walk with Richard and Julie Reyna.
having moral standards, following your moral principles given to you by God, Christ, his church. And here it is. My opinion, my experience, this is a variant of judge not, lest ye be judged. We're all sinners. That's supposed to say that I sin, you sin, he sins, she sins. We all sin. That's the way it is. Judge not, lest ye be judged. You know, you're a sinner too. Which is true. We are. But it comes down to the nature of of our sinning. If I sin because I'm weak, I'm frail, I do things that I shouldn't do on impulse, I have habits I'm struggling to get rid of that have been hounding me for years and decades, I commit sins. But, hopefully, I repent of those sins and I resolve to do the very best I can with God's grace to to get rid of them. So I am a sinner. Yeah, I can get under the umbrella of we're all sinners. But the one thing I don't want to do when I'm a sinner is to say, well, I know it's a sin, so... I want to do it. I'm just living this way, and I have no desire to repent of it or to even look at it because we're all sinners. Which bespeaks of the difference between sinning out of weakness and repenting because of the sin and living with the sin, having no intention of doing anything about it because you don't agree that you have to, so at a very shallow level, we're all sinners encompasses both of us. But with any kind of depth of interpretation of that statement, with any kind of context, the nature, if you will, of the sin is very different. Very, very, very different. One is weakness. The other is deliberate. One is repentance of the weakness. The other is no repentance of the deliberateness. So if you get hit with that one, I guess what I want to say to you is, somebody says to you, well, you know, we're all sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. You say, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But I I would hope that my sinfulness is from my weakness and I would hope that I'm trying to, to leave it behind. You don't have to say, you're not. You have no desire to stop what you're doing. You don't have to say that. That ain't going to get you anywhere. But you've made your point. The implication is there. And hopefully they'll hear it. Okie dokie. Let me come back. I want to read to you an interesting email I got a few weeks back. Which piggybacks on a manologue that I did um, on this, un- well, I, I'm going to say unintended, but I think that with any, any kind of forethought, 
with a 101 knowledge of children, one would put this into their calculation of what to do. You'll, you'll see what I mean when I come back. I'm being deliberately cryptic. I'm Dr. Ray. Thank you for joining me. The doctor will be with you in just a moment. You had it right on the money again. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Bishop Robert Barron. Find out in any cultural situation, who's the Lord? (laughs) There's somebody or some principle, some figure, some institution that has central importance in that culture. Whether it's king, whether it's the military, uh, who knows what it is? Go up and down the centuries. What's the Lord? The declaration of the Lordship of Jesus will always be a challenge to whatever that reigning Lord happens to be. The Lord today is my personal freedom. I decide what my life is. I decide who I am. I decide everything from my gender to the ultimate meaning of my life. Now that personal freedom is so powerful that it's become the Lord. To evangelize the culture is therefore to challenge them and to say, no, no, it's not your own ego, not your own freedom that's Lord. Jesus determines the meaning of your life. Jesus is the center of your life, not your own freedom. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Over the last 50 years, we've had some of the greatest popes since the Reformation era. So why are things such a mess in American Catholicism? How do we analyze and confront the attacks we're facing? How do we identify wolves in sheep's clothing? How do we re-evangelize the baptized? Dr. Ralph Martin makes sense of a church in crisis and shows pathways forward. He'll make sense of a disordered world. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and you'll find it in our online bookstore. My husband and I, we listen to you all the time. (laughs) Him at work, me at home, and then we talk about it over dinner. Boy, you guys, you got to get a better marriage. One of the great things about this program is you. In many ways, I learn a lot from you. But you send me things. Sometimes you refer me to different websites, or you might suggest a book. You are like having a nationwide wire service uh, a google you're my google you send me great great stuff that that helps me and sometimes it's your personal experience that well either embellishes something i've said or takes away from something i've said and the, and the taken away isn't necessarily bad this is e-person monday by the way on the doctor is in this is where we just take on your e-persons and do our very best to answer them at at some level we get a lot we get a lot um some weeks ago i did a manologue and the manologue centered around the idea that the masks are a symbol of danger a symbol of fear 
Whether you want that to be or not, that is the way it is. I'm not going to get into the debate on whether they're good or bad or pros or cons. There's, there's research on both sides that indicates they're effective and indicates they're not effective. So just given the fact that we have decided to go in the direction of masks, pretty much all the way. Not just for adults, though. For children. I mean, where I live, automatic. K through 12, masks. Preschool through 12, masks. Now, (laughs) anybody who says this about kids doesn't know kids. Good luck with that one. Or good luck with them not touching their face 28 times per hour, more than that. So, I made the observation that one of the things I'm seeing as a psychologist, and I've seen other doctors now come out with this. We've created a terrible, terrible sense of fear, distress, even depression, anxiety among our youth. Think about this. You're six years old, and you see all the grown-ups around you wearing masks, and you have to wear a mask. What are you going to think? Oh, they're just doing this so I don't sneeze on anybody. No, you're going to look at this and wonder why all these people are doing this. Of course. So after I, after I gave that monologue, my experience, and now it's being backed up by more people coming out, I got this about a couple days later. Dear Dr. Ray, a friend of mine sent me a link to one of your radio shows when you talked about kids wearing masks at the First Holy Communion and having photos taken with their masks on. That's right. I bemoaned that. I said, for heaven's sakes, take them outside. If you want, split them six feet apart. But let these poor kids have a first communion picture with the priest with their face. No, no, no. Here's my first communion picture. I got a mask on. I am employed. She goes on. I am employed at a YMCA summer camp. My group of kids are in grades four and five. Their comments about coronavirus frighten me. There is constant reference to death dying. For instance, someone will cough. And one of the kids will say, you've got corona, you're going to die. Last week, while walking to a nearby park, one of the boys, who comes on Wednesdays and Fridays, told me he was going to die from corona and he would not be at camp on Friday. Dr. Ray, those kids are just yanking her chain. Oh, really? Well, then she doesn't know that because she's there and she's hearing this. She goes on. These kids are living in a constant state of anxiety and fear. They're not allowed to do a lot of things at camp due to all the restrictions outside. And this adds to their frustrations. Starting tomorrow, all the kids will be required to wear masks. She says this, I know kids die from coronavirus. Yes, that is true. Just like kids die from sledding accidents, kids die in the highest numbers in cars, kids die from 
bacterial infections. Kids die from the flu. Yeah, I'm not going to get into abortion yet. I saw a statistic just very recently that said over 97,000 children have tested positive for corona. 97,000. Now you see that number and you freak. Oh my, 100,000 kids! And then they gave the number of children who died of the 97,000. Interesting that they gave that number because typically they leave the death number out. The death number is going down and it is way less than the tested cases. You're testing for a virus, okay? You're going to know the kids are going to get a virus. But interestingly enough, the flu kills more children than coronavirus does. And they said that in that same time period that the 97,000 cases is since March, uh, 13,000 children died from other causes. She says, I am 63 years old. I have little concern about my job infecting me. She says, I'm more concerned about people wearing a mask while driving and looking at their cell phone as they drive through a red blinking light when I want to cross the street. (laughs) Yeah, Janine, so very well put. I don't know exactly when people will start to say, uh, the part about little kids wearing masks. Dr. Ray, are you not aware? I'm trying to anticipate I'm trying to anticipate some email. Are you not aware that children can give it to adults? We don't want them to give it to the teacher. Well, the question does become how how much can a child not infected do anything? That's one. And by the way, if you look at the child numbers, 97,000, we have approximately 100 million kids in this country. 97,000 is one in a thousand. One in a thousand children so far have tested positive. One in a thousand. So the second question is, and these are just legitimate questions. I'm not arguing one way or the other. I'm just asking questions, which good psychologists are supposed to do. Second question is, if you are asymptomatic with the virus, what is your degree of contagion? How much can you actually pass it on? And that seems to be the unknown. It truly is. They, they thought at the beginning of all this, oh, no, 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 you can just you pass it on. But now, they're saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All righty. Here's a question from Virginia. She says, I have such a hard time with this question. Jesus said his yoke is easy, that he is with us if we call on him. The problem I have is this. What about abducted women, men, children who are sex trafficked, who are held captive, who are beaten, people who are homeless? Name it, anything you want. Suppose they call on Jesus, but they still continue to be mistreated, etc. Where is he for them? I understand the free will of the evil person doing this, but what about the victim? I understand about Jesus having to be taken and crucified for us. But that almost seems different. Do you understand what I'm trying to figure out? 
Needless to say, I want to trust Jesus with whatever comes my way, but then I think about the above and ask the question. Thanks for your help in helping me understand. Ah, uh, well, Virginia, I don't know how much I can help you understand. I'll read to the folks here what I wrote to Virginia. I said, Dear Virginia, yours is the age-old question about suffering, especially at the hands of others. God is infinite, and he has an infinite number of ways to make it all right, most of which would have to be after this world. We only can see what we can see. What, 10, 15 years ago, that tsunami killed 100,000 people? One fell swoop? Oh, boy. Sure seems unfair, doesn't it? So what we are essentially saying is, all equity, all justice has to occur in this little sliver of life. Well, if there is a God, and if God controls every atom of the universe and can do whatever he wishes within possibility, that is, you know, he can't make a rock as heavy as so heavy he can't lift it. He can't make a a, a pig pig that can fly. Or he could, but he'd have to redesign it. You can't make a pig fly. Well, depending on how you do. I'm getting getting into the weeds. Forget that. Just ignore what I just... The jury will disregard those last four statements of the host. If God, if God is infinite, then he has ways that we we couldn't even comprehend to make it fair, to make it just. Now, the standard answer is, of course, he has to give you free will to free to love, but you're also free to hate. You're also free to hurt, of course. But that still doesn't take care of the, the matter of a four-year-old child getting leukemia. Although, interestingly enough, now now think about this for a second. Just, just ponder this. If we say that heaven is complete bliss forever, then as tragic as as much as it hurts us for a little four-year-old to pass away that little four-year-old has heaven forever he didn't have to risk his soul anything it was it was a free ride but all all we see is the suffering all we see is the 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 inequity of it he could have lived to be 80 yeah but God would say, yeah, if he lived to be 80, he'd totally ignore me. He would completely jeopardize the state of his soul. So he's with me now forever. See, that's what I mean about we don't understand. I'm not saying that's going to take away the pain. But it's what we don't understand. One of the things that has always helped me with so many of these questions, the first thing is they are not sufficient to make me question the existence of God. My conclusion on the existence of God is based upon what I believe is very credible evidence. And the existence of Christ being God is even heavier credible evidence. So once I've concluded that the existence of God is there, he's real, Christ was God, once I've got that, then when I raise questions that I don't understand, why is there suffering? How can a, a compassionate God let people go to hell for all eternity? They didn't, they didn't sin for all eternity? That doesn't seem even. How can 
God just sit back and allow this wild proliferation of religions, non-Christian religions that are more than Christian religions? Is this a God saying all these people are going to go to hell? Now, see, those questions for me, I am forced to say, I know nothing about how God does it. Nothing. So if he exists, and if I believe he's loving and fair, well, then then he's got ways I don't know anything about. It's like a little kid, a four-year-old, going up to daddy. Daddy, I don't see how you're going to do that. Well, son, you don't. You don't know how I can do that, but this is how I'm going to. I can do it this way. The little kid doesn't have any idea how his daddy can fix something or do something. He doesn't know. He can't even. He can't conceptualize it. And the gap between a four-year-old and me is a lot smaller. Sometimes my wife says two years than the gap between me and God. So. Virginia, I think I gave you more than I wrote in my brief little answer. to communion. Three Edmonton Radio, we talk to audiences all over the world. One thing I've found out is everybody in the whole world has the same set of questions. They live the same human life. They all want meaning. They all want love. They all want significance. They want forgiveness. That's the most fascinating thing to me. The same answers work wherever you are throughout the world because we're all children of God. Called to communion with Dr. David Anders. This afternoon, 2 Eastern on EWTN Radio. Fair and honest elections are the lifeblood of our constitutional republic. Its survival depends upon it. Indeed, our Constitution demands it. The Michigan Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, acting without legislative approval, flooded the electoral process for the 2020 general election with absentee ballots. This was accomplished by the Secretary's unilateral decision to send absentee ballot request forms to every household in Michigan with a registered voter, regardless of whether the voter was still alive or actually resided at that address. The Secretary also permitted online requests for absentee ballots without the requisite signature verification. These actions were not approved or authorized by the state legislature. Predictably, this flood of unauthorized absentee ballots resulted in many eyewitness reports evidencing serious election malfeasance at the TCF Center in Detroit. On Thanksgiving morning, we filed a petition for extraordinary writs and declaratory relief in the Michigan Supreme Court on behalf of two Michigan voters seeking a judicial remedy for this election malfeasance. The petition was denied by a 4-3 to three vote. Unfortunately, there's been no independent or neutral investigation of these and many other serious allegations, which will forever cast a dark cloud of doubt and suspicion over the 2020 election. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center, bringing you this Faith and Freedom Minute. You can learn more about the American Freedom Law Center by visiting our website and liking us on Facebook.
my uh, my younger uh, viewers out there, there's a book. We used to have books. Yeah, we, we used to have them before we had the internet. A uh, book is like a blog. It's like a blog for people who who have attention spans. I'm Dr. Ray. Thanks for joining me here on this E-Person Monday. Let's go to this one. And, oh boy, oh boy. Many parents are finding themselves faced with this decision. Because the kids put them in that position. And the parents are afraid to make the decision they want to make because they're afraid the kid is going to hit them with the big emotional club and walk out of their lives. We are a practicing Catholic family with three kids. Our oldest just turned 18, starting college, remotely, full ride scholarship in the honors program. Woo-hoo. She has always been driven and very independent. Recently, she's been hanging out with the girl from work. She has known for six months. Now, mom, when mom stop her, I'm assuming she's still living at home. And so, and this is very common, by the way, the kids hook up with someone who shows them the side that, uh, well, that they're either have been interested in in a while and haven't stepped in that direction, or all of a sudden it's uh, it's looking pretty good because my parents never let me see that side. And the kids, of course, think that their parents stunted them. We tried to get to know this girl, but she rarely came around, and our daughter stays there almost every night. Excuse me? And then mom puts in parentheses, since she turned 18. Uh, okay, so I'm assuming, mom, you're giving her permission to stay out all night at age 18? What does that have anything to do with it? What does that have to do with anything? She's 18, so what? She lives at home. That means she has certain legal rights, but that's it. It's meaningless if she's living in your house. But see, I'm reading between the lines here, and I think you're you're caught. You feel like, well, she is an adult. She's a legal adult, so I guess we can't tell her what to do. Of course you can. She's living in your house. My son turned 18, my oldest son. It's Adam Downer's birthday. I've told this story before. Andrew, you're 18 now. In the eyes of the law, you're an adult, which means you can come and go as you please, do what you want, when you want. Spend your money however you want. Talk however you want. Watch whatever you want. I can't do anything about it. Of course, if you choose to do all that, you can't live here. He smiled because he knew that's where his old man was headed. This girl that she hangs out with lives with her mother and is three years older than our daughter. We caught our daughter lying to us about our whereabouts. We took the car from her that we provide. Okay, now we're starting to get into it. Uh, she's 18 and she's enjoying the perks of mommy and daddy, but I'm doing what I want, and which includes staying out overnight whenever I want. And by the way, mom, I wouldn't be so quick to think they're all just sitting at home web streaming a movie. I would guess when she stays out all night, she's all over the place. Um, she, okay, we took the car from her in an ugly scene and she left. Over a week ago, she only took what she needed and still has most of her stuff at our home. We've not heard from her for over a week. She's without a car. 
We are still paying for her phone service. Okay. You tell me why. Just you know, I mean you don't have to tell me, but just quite just just a question. I know what you're saying. It's a quote unquote safety factor. She is starting college in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, she's on full ride scholarship. Does that include the room and board? Does that include all the things you would pay for? <clears throat> also, having talked to our younger daughter who is 16, the 18-year-old feels like she's a victim and has for some time. There it is. There it is. So often this stuff has been brewing. It started when the child was 14, 15, 16, and it's been brewing. And as soon as they have the quote-unquote legal freedom to do what they think they can do at any time, it comes out. This didn't just happen. In my guess, this just didn't happen because she started hanging around with that girl at work and went from being this kid who totally embraces the way she was raised to a kid who totally rejects the way she's raised. <clears throat> Where are we at here? She feels like her father and I are these awful parents who do not care about her. And, according to our 16-year-old, and siblings do siblings do know a lot more about siblings, especially in the teen years, than we parents do. We did not make it to all her sports and events and did not get her gifts for her birthday. We combine Christmas and birthday when purchasing high-ticket items. These are just comments she shared with our 16-year-old over time. I'm sure there's more to it, but not sure what's going through her mind. Well, you I think you're absolutely right, Mom. You can definitely be sure there's more to it. And what is going through her mind is a buildup, a Rolodex of resentments. I'm also fearful the influence she is having, she is around, is not healthy and could be feeding into her victim feelings. I... I would say so. But at this point, she's 18, and she can leave, and she can live wherever she wants. Your question is, what do you do about college? What do you do about support? Now, there's no doubt in my mind that if you decide to cut college funding, and she's only on, she's only flat out on her her scholarship, and she has no spending money she has no extra money and she's going to take out a loan but you're not going to co-sign then you be prepared because if she got that mad because you took the car and left hey i don't want to think about what she'd react to if you if you take a stand like that what do we do from here do we reach out to her do we turn off the cell phone service and through tough love no mom it's not tough love it's love love is Emotions and will and responsibility, that's love. I've been praying to Venus and the Rosary every day, hoping for some guidance for our daughter's safety and well-being and for her to know in her heart that we love her. Well, yeah, I think that's a great thing to pray for. But in terms of praying for her to have a change of heart, yeah, you keep doing that, but you recognize that that change of heart may be a little slow in coming. And depending upon what you decide to do regarding her college... See, I'm always amazed at parents who, whose kids just reject them and reject so much about them and who think they're idiots that the parents turn around and pay for their college. And especially colleges the way it is now. You could, you, you've got a better than 50% chance, 50% chance she's going to lose her faith. 
and uh, especially get into partying. Bad combo. And then we turn around and pay for it. Uh, uh, I think a nice rule is college payments are dependent upon responsibility and morality. from God. Father Mitch Pacwa shares his experience. I certainly had a bit of opposition. My father wasn't pleased with this at all and he kept arguing with me. Once when I was 12, he said to me, what do you want to be a priest for? Why don't you be a doctor? You don't have to be a priest to help people. You can be a doctor and get married, have kids. And I said to him then, Dad, if I was a doctor and I help people get better, that would be very good. But later on, they're going to die anyway. So if I'm a priest and I hear somebody's confession and they go to heaven, that lasts forever. So that's better. And he didn't know what to say. And he continued to oppose the idea over the next years. Yet that didn't stop me. And uh, even when he said, I'm going to disinherit you if you become a priest. And on the day of my first mass, he did. But as I also said to him then, he told me, okay, you're out of my will. I said, Dad, I can't keep it anyway. It doesn't matter. I'm a Jesuit, and we can't keep the money, so it really doesn't affect me. The issue is I'm trying to follow what God, our Lord, is asking of me. And this has been where I have found the greatest joy, that doing what I believe through my own prayer and through reflection and thinking about it and moving from a little boy's idea of what a priest would be like all the way to now in my early 50s, you know, realizing that this is exactly what I think is going to please God the most. And that's what I want to do, to please God. For information on the priesthood or religious life, log on to www.ewtn.com slash religious life. Dr. Ray, thank you so much for joining me here. Doctor is in. This is uh, E-Person Monday. Oh, yeah, I call it E-Person. You can't call it E-Mail. Come on! Patriarchal, linguistically insensitive. Gotta say person. By the way, our, uh, our music director at church told me that his brother wrote him. He's in a university, which I shall not name. But the uh, music theorist there said that... Uh, that the music, the, I guess the classical stuff, or whatever, has a has a a, a racist component to it. Yeah. Uh, not even the words here. This is the music. <clears throat> this is from Robert. Now I I spoke. I I forget when it was, but I I spoke about my dad. And my point was, he was so much of his generation. They worked hard. 
They stayed in their marriages. They wanted to raise their kids as best they could. They were, by and large, search-going people. Just, just, just decent people. I'm writing to thank you for your short EWTN clip describing how you knew that your father loved you. Yeah, I remember that now. I was talking about Pop, and I said so much like his generation. They were, they were slow to express emotions. They didn't wear their hearts on their sleeve. That was, that was just not the cultural persona of guys at that time. And I said, but I knew Pop loved me. And I listed how he loved me. Like you, Dr. Ray, I grew up in northeastern Ohio, Youngstown. Very familiar with Youngstown. Where my father was a factory worker at a rubber factory. He left home every weekday morning at 6 a.m. and got home around 4 p.m., tired and grimy. I never saw the inside of that factory where my mother also worked before I was born. Until I was born. And and then worked until I was in college. But the heat and the dusty air was inside was just as you described it in your father's case. Oh, yeah, it was brutal. Loud, banging, brutal. Can you imagine wearing a mask in there? Like your father, mine was a man of few words. By nature, perhaps. But also by a Midwestern culture of, no doubt... The experience of being drafted at the age of 33 with a wife and a child and being sent off to war in the South Pacific. I don't recall my father or my mother ever saying out loud that they loved me or they loved each other. In fact, sometimes their conversations could be a script for the Bickersons. Nor were they the sort of people who did much touching. But my myself and my older brother never doubted that they loved us. Yeah, the, the tendency in our culture is we we've deci- we've defined, and this has been this has been moved by the psychologists and the counselor types. We've defined real genuine love as expressive love directly through emotions or affection, and and those are really good things. Don't hear me saying I'm trivializing them, but all too often I've seen adults with resentment toward their parents because their parents didn't express love like the. The youth, modern generation thinks it should be stra- it should be expressed. That's the that's what I mean. Their love showed up in the sacrifices they made. So we were both in the first of our extended family to go to college. We both ended up having long careers as university professors. They showed it in their expectations that we would study as hard as they worked in the pride they took in our accomplishments and the concern they showed in our difficulties. There were no, quote, public displays of affection, but countless demonstrations of loyalty, care, and genuine interest. Ain't that the truth? Love can be expressed in so many ways, and there's so much, so much a tendency to look back and go, you know, my father never did this. Yes, and I'm not saying it wouldn't have been good. I'm just saying I don't like the the modern intolerance sometimes of our own parents because they didn't have the exact same bent toward expressing feelings that we now do in our culture that is so so wrapped up in that. All right. Oh, my past goes not even letting me in. Always does that. There shakes and... Okay, I'm back. Uh, let's see. I was 16 
when I left for college. My mother didn't cry. I never saw my mom cry. But she came closer to it than I'd ever seen. My father didn't say much till I was about to leave. He walked to the car and said, and this is so typical of so much of that generation, I got to laugh. The kid's going off to college, okay? What do you tell a kid going off to college? His dad said, I don't want you playing cards at college. That sort of reflected the, the, the dangers of the time. My father was a card player, mostly for pennies. I never saw him lose. When I asked him why, he said, you're a terrible card player. You'll lose your shirt. <laughs> by the way, by the end of my first year, I had seen guys in my dorm lose a expensive camera and a BMW motorcycle playing poker. <laughs> I was desperately homesick in my final two months at a fairly elite liberal arts college where I was the only student in my group from a working-class background and almost two years younger than most of my classmates. I went home for the weekend near the end of October, and I thought I might not go back, but when I got home, I realized how much tougher both of my parents had had it when they were younger and all they had done to give me a chance at the opportunity I had. I returned that weekend knowing that of all the things they'd given their sons the most important was the confidence to be my own person with children of my own in my group in the company of a lot of folks the world would consider upscale yeah this is this is nice it goes on it's from robert it's from uh, it's from canada canada and his point was the point i want to make I, I saw an I saw a show one time. This is one of, this is when the the height of these uh, touchy feely, my life is wretched and miserable shows, and we put on a we put on a show for the audience and the TV viewing audience. And the show was essentially talking about all the ways that the parents just really didn't make the child feel loved. Now. The automatic implication in this was that whatever the child was saying, it wasn't a child, it was either all adults, whatever they were saying was true. It reflected reality accurately. My parents didn't show love. How was that defined? Well, in most cases, it was, it was defined as an overt display of affection. But the question was never raised, well, did they do other things to show love other than how you define it? My love language is affection. That's good. Okay, that may, be, that may be the way that you most feel loved. But as a Christian, you can't look at somebody else and say, you need to answer my love language. No, no. As a Christian, you are to reach out toward them. And if you find out how they most want you to express love, then you do it that way. But you can't demand it the other way. It's like, oh, yeah, I know you do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G for me, but that's not what I think love is. I think love is M-N-O-P. And you don't do M-N-O-P. And I think what Robert's talking about here is as he got older, he looked and he saw my, my dad sacrificed like crazy for us. Crazy. His commitment level, 
his interest yeah he, he didn't have he didn't have the smoothest personality and he and mom argued a lot i remember that too of course among italians sometimes we 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 get into these bicker battles and then two minutes later we're eating lasagna together and laughing so robert thank you for the e-person i appreciate it and i guess what i want to say to anybody listening as much as possible go easy on your parents especially your grandparents because they grew up in a very different time and they were in many respects reflective of the personality the persona of their particular generation i'm dr ray all the advice none of the bills come in the doctor is in i'm dr stan williams and this is the logic of catholicism Solanus Casey said, appreciation is as necessary for social order and harmony as are the laws of gravity for the physical world. St. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and lived among us. John's referring, of course, to Jesus as the Word, which in Greek is logos, and that's where we get the concept of order, reason, and logic. People with Jesus could see, hear, and touch him. With their senses, they eventually reasoned that Jesus was the incarnation of God, who beforehand they had only known by faith. Thus, the incarnation unites faith and reason. Today, tell someone you appreciate Jesus, because he revealed how faith and reason together are, well, logical. And that's the logic of Catholicism. Explore more at AveMariaRadio.net. Under Resources, look for me, Dr. Stan Williams. What is the origin of marriage? The Catholic Catechism tells us God the Father instituted the marital union with our first parents, Adam and Eve. He clearly established it as a covenant between a man and a woman when he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of his people's hearts. But when Jesus came, he restored the original order as planned by his Father. He declared that a true marriage was indissoluble. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. The church attaches great importance to the fact that Jesus' first miracle occurred at a wedding, signaling that henceforth marriage will be an efficacious sign of Christ's presence. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. hard to do move your hands like that only karate guys can do it i'm dr ray thanks for joining me here i got time for a real quick one real quick one my four-year-old grandson recently saw a reflection of himself in the mirror and said i hate you well you know grandma i kind of know how he feels i mean i don't hate me but i look in the mirror and i go "Ooh, ooh, i hate that so and I confirmed that he was talking about himself. Okay. So, been looking at himself in the mirror. I immediately tried to reassure him that he shouldn't hate himself, and that he was beautiful, smart, loving, etc. I'm very bothered by this. Grandma, why? 
See, I suspect you're bothered because, of course, with our rampant tsunami of a self-image movement in our culture the last generation or two, what is wrong? That's 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 pathological. That you don't you don't love yourself. First of all, it was said by a four-year-old, which uh, you can't put a whole lot of psychological meaning in anything a four-year-old says. They say all kinds of stuff. They say goofy stuff. They go goofy nuts. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful show uh, about this on Everybody Loves Raymond. The little the little preschool kid drew a picture of the ugly family. Oh, it threw everybody into a tizzy. You know who is the ugly? This one's got really ugly teeth, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and they went to to see the the therapist because we had to find out exactly why he perceives it this way. And in the end, you know what it was? He was drawing a picture of a cartoon that he saw. Well, and you know, that kind of stuff's more true than you know. How does a four-year-old learn to hate himself? Well, first of all, he doesn't hate himself, Grandma. He doesn't hate himself. I don't know what he meant by that. I don't think he meant anything. And I'm only basing this upon the, 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 the idea that most four-year-olds just say stuff. If he hated himself, you'd see it in a whole bunch of ways. You'd see it in his mood. You'd see it in maybe temper tantrums. You'd see it in all kinds of stuff. His parents are married. His mom, my daughter, does not work outside of the home. They have another son who's two. There, here it is. I didn't see this one coming. What is your advice to help him gain a healthy self-image? I don't know that he doesn't have a healthy self-image. I would never automatically just assume he has no healthy self-image because he looked at his reflection in the mirror and said, I hate you. <laughs> Who knows what he heard at preschool? Who knows what he heard anywhere? And besides, who knows what he means, if anything, by that? If it were me, I wouldn't be shook up. I'd just say, hey, <laughs> well, we don't hate you, and God loves you. So there. That's <laughs> about all I would do on that one. Because I would, I would just not be all that shook up by that one. Especially, especially if the little guy just seems like a normal four-year-old. Oh, he's on the shy side. Okay, so that's still a normal four-year-old. This this definitely speaks. I wrote a chapter in a book once. My very, very first book was called You're a Better Parent Than You Think because I saw that it reflected there's so much going on in our culture that parents were getting very nervous and they were starting to interpret their kids' behavior. And there was a chapter called Is My Child Normal? And I talked about that. I saw we, we tend to infuse psychological meaning in things that isn't there, but because we, we've been we've been trained, we've been told, we've been immersed in over psychologizing, so that when kids do things that's well within the wide wide spectrum of normalcy, we're tempted to put some kind of interpretation on it, and it's usually a scary interpretation. You know, Grandma assumed here he doesn't have a healthy self-image. How can you assume that? Based on one remark? Eh. This better be a very, very broad picture. And besides, he's four. The vast majority of four-year-olds I know naturally have a positive self-image. They're four years old. So, I got it. I do appreciate you all being with me. 
so very, very much. On the Sea Person Monday, good luck permitting. Talk to you tomorrow with my cohort and producer man, Andrew Kruchek, manning those little lights and buttons that flash. Walk with God, always. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. for listening to Rise and Walk with Richard and Julie Reyna. To listen or watch again, go to iTunes or visit the Guadalupe Radio Network Facebook page. Have a question or comment? Email us at riseandwalk at grnonline.com. And make sure to join us next week for another episode of Rise and Walk. an old gas guzzler with mechanical problems that's just not worth a low trade-in offer this Christmas season? Consider helping out those who are less fortunate by donating that vehicle you don't drive anymore to the Guadalupe Radio Network by calling 888-784-3476 or come by grnonline.com and click on donate. It's a safe and free way to help us. Oh, and it's a big tax benefit. So celebrate the season by giving to others and supporting the Guadalupe Radio Network. Mother Teresa said, let no one come to you without leaving better or happier. This is how we try to live our personal and professional lives. We're Rob and Camille DeMaio, proud sponsors of Guadalupe Radio here in San Antonio. Our team of realtors can help you through every step of buying or selling a home. For more information, call us at 210-488-1144 for real estate help in San Antonio and throughout the United States. Rob and Camille DeMaio, your real estate team. 210-488-1144. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him, give my heart? This is the last stanza of the popular poem, A Christmas Carol by Christina G. Rossetti. As we celebrate this Christmas season, remember that the Son of God became man to save us from our sin. In this joyous time, let us fulfill his request of giving our hearts to him. This is Cecil Anderson, your North Texas assistant, wishing you and your family a blessed Christmas. All Catholic, all the time. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Streaming to the world at grnonline.com and on your FM dial at 89.7. We're KJMA, Floresville, San Antonio. All Catholic, all the time.